0: see this in the way that people live their lives. They want more things. They want more stuff. They want to upgrade their situation. They may want a new car. They may want a new spouse, which hopefully you don't want. Uh, But a lot of people love upgrading their situations because there's this sense that drives humans that we are not content with our current situation. We have never arrived at the destination that we believe that God has for us. And today we are seeing that very feeling come to the patriarch, Jacob. He had a sense that he was not at home in this world. And we're actually going to see that the Bible says a lot of things that seem counterintuitive about this. And says very different things to what popular Christians and popular teachers love to say about the future. So we're going to get into it. And I hope you guys uh, get a lot out of our passage today. So my three points that I have. Is number one the good land, number two, the cursed land, and number three, the promised land. So let's get into it. We're in verse one of Genesis 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their lives, uh, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle on the land of Goshen. And if you know any able man among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. We're going to stop there. So it's now come time for Joseph and his family to take possession of the land of Goshen. Well, at least for a time. When Pharaoh hears the news that his right-hand man, the prime minister of Egypt, the savior of the world, Joseph, his family have come into Egypt, he, of course, is eager to meet them. He wants to see the family that has produced such a talented, unique, and gifted man as Joseph. And yet Joseph has a plan. If you guys were here last week, you'll remember that uh, Joseph knows the Egyptians well. He married the priest of On's daughter, Asenath, and that has taught him a lot about this pagan culture, the hostility they have to outsiders and the difficulty maintaining a distinct people in amongst a pagan culture. We saw how in the land of Canaan, Israel was often tempted to become just like the Canaanites, often intermarrying with the Canaanites. We see uh, Jacob when he was at Shechem, he actually wanted to integrate with the Shechemites for a brief period before Levi and Simeon uh, kind of put a stop to that. And so Joseph tells his brothers, make sure to emphasize the point that you guys are shepherds that you guys are keepers of livestock, and why? Well, remember last week he said, say that to Pharaoh because shepherds are an abomination in Egypt. Imagine your strategy of moving into a new area and the guy that already lives there says, hey, just for a second, when you go there, make sure you emphasize all the points that the people over there hate, all the points that the people over there despise. They despised shepherds. And that was Joseph's strategy. He wanted them to be considered an abomination. But why? Well, we learned last week that this strategy will keep Israel a distinct nation, segregated from Egypt and segregated from their pagan culture. It was against the law for any Egyptian woman to intermarry with the Hebrews. Remember that it's not God's strategy to be liked by the culture. As Christians, we think that we'll have a greater effect on the culture if things uh, that distinguish us are minimized. The things that are offensive to the world, we minimize those things and we maximize those things where we have common ground, where we can build bridges to them. That's kind of the common teaching we see in the church. But it doesn't really seem that God feels the same way. Jesus wants us to be a city on a hill, right? He wants us to shine brightly in the culture. He wants us to be a light in a dark place and that does not happen without distinction. The greatest distinction that you can possibly get is light from darkness. And so we think shining brightly like a light, if Jesus is telling us to shine brightly like a light, oh, if we could just do that, how good will it be? If we could just do that, oh, people will come flocking. People will want to uh, believe in Jesus. People will want to come to the church. But the greatest light in the world came into the world 2000 years ago and this is the judgment that John says in John 3:19 says and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil you see Jesus shone brightly into his culture more than anyone has ever shone into their culture and they killed him so christian Let go of the idea of being liked, of being applauded by the culture, or even just being tolerated by the culture. Rather, hold on to the idea of being a follower of God no matter the cost. Whether whether if, if you're in a privileged position and people like the fact you're a Christian, or whether being a Christian is considered an abomination to your culture. Being distinctly His in a world hostile to him. And that is God's strategy for multiplication, fruitfulness and blessing. We might say, hold up a minute, God. This doesn't sound like a strategy for multiplication, fruitfulness and blessing. This sounds like a strategy of being afflicted. This sounds like the strategy of having people do horrible things to us. And over the course of human history, we have seen that for God's people. They have been afflicted. In fact, the Israelites have set themselves up to be in a position where they'll fall into slavery but God says, in your affliction in Egypt, you will multiply. I will have you exactly where I want you. And that is just so countercultural to the way we feel, isn't it? It's so different to the way we think. It's so different to the way we strategize. We don't think, oh, let's maximize the areas which we're different from the culture. We want to minimize those things. And Joseph says to his brothers, hey guys, I want you to maximize the areas where the Egyptians think you are an abomination. And abomination is a very strong word. A very, very strong word. And so the brothers, they heed Joseph's warning. Instead of trying to upsell themselves, instead of coming into Pharaoh and trying to wiggle their way around and make them sound better than shepherds, they don't. They say, actually, we are just shepherds, keepers of livestock. But they are quick to mention to Pharaoh that they are sojourners. Verse 4, it says, we have come to sojourn in the land For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. Now, I think we need to press pause for a second there and just make sure that we all know what the word sojourn means. It's a pretty old school word, not many people use it today, but it is a very, very important biblical word. If you don't know it, make sure you get well acquainted with it. It means a temporary stay somewhere. To sojourn somewhere means that you're having a temporary stay there. So if you were traveling into Sydney and you were going to stay at a bed and breakfast there, you could say, I'm going down to sojourn in Sydney. That's kind of what it's saying. And that sojourn could mean five days or it could mean five years or it could mean 50 years. But the point is, this isn't your destination. You're not staying here. And so the brothers are saying to Pharaoh, We are only staying for a short time. We are sojourners. We are not setting up shop. We are not camping here. We are not taking over this land. This is where we are going to stay until we can return. Because Egypt is not their home. Their home was in Canaan, the place that God had called them to, the promised land. Now, we remember that Pharaoh is not a, well, it seems sometimes that he's a good guy, but we must remember that uh, pagan rulers could be very paranoid. They can be very capricious. They can be very um, arbitrary. They can change their minds in a second. Uh, speaking with an ancient king was kind of like defusing a bomb you don't want to snip the wrong wire because it could blow up in your face instead of him blessing you with the land of uh goshen one wrong word one wrong vibe and the king just might kill you instead of blessing you but the strategy pays off pharaoh overlooks the fact that they're shepherds and says you know what you guys can look after my livestock. Hey, that works out pretty well. Like God gives, seems to give them favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and he decides to bless them with the best of the land in Goshen. And there they are permitted to dwell for a time. But that time kind of ends up 400 years, doesn't it? They, were, they all came in with the expectation that they would leave when the famine was over. But God had other plans. And so it's time for now Pharaoh to meet Jacob. This is perhaps one of the most interesting meetings in all the Bible. So you have Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. The Egyptian empire at the time was enormous. There was no other kingdom. There was no other people group. There was no other community that was anywhere close to the power of Egypt. And then you have Jacob, the elderly, lowly shepherd who carries the weight of the promises of God. Two very different men. One man looks strong, the other man looks weak. The strength of the world versus the wisdom of God. And immediately the first thing we see is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now, if you had a bit more of an ancient mindset, you'd be like, hang on a minute, Jacob is blessing Pharaoh? That doesn't make any sense. Because the greater blesses the lesser. We actually see it in Hebrews 7.7. The writer of Hebrews says, it is beyond dispute. That the inferior is blessed By the superior. It's beyond dispute. It's obvious. It's plain to see. For us, you know, we just bless each other. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, you can bless your boss. Your boss can bless you. But in this culture, you wouldn't dare bless a superior because you would be claiming superiority over them. And here comes Jacob. He just does not care. I'm going to bless you, Pharaoh. I'm going to bless you. And it's the first and only time we see a patriarch blessing a pagan ruler And with wonder and awe, Pharaoh not only receives it, but he asks, how old are you? And you can see the respect in Pharaoh's voice, the awe in the way that he asks it. Now, in our culture, asking someone's age might seem a little rude, but not so in the ancient world. Every year was a badge of honor. Normally, if you're going to lie about your age, in our time, you definitely want the number to be lower than you want the number to be higher. But in the ancient times, if you're going to lie, you would probably go the other way. You probably want to be older. You probably want to have that, uh, that wisdom, that superiority over other people. And it was a thing to reverence this old age, a thing to respect and honor. And the Bible universally, whether you're reading Proverbs or other sections of the Bible, you can see that old age is a thing of blessing. And we would do well to defer to those who are older, to treat them respectfully and honorably, those who have lived long lives, and to refrain from speaking evil of them. And it's a shame. Because as people get older in our culture, they feel more and more shame with each added number. Some don't want to let go of their youth. You can see some grandmas and they're wearing outfits that you imagine a teenage girl would wear. And you're thinking, lady, it is a good thing to be your age. It is not an evil thing. Every number is a new year to praise God for. Have a look at how Jacob replies to Pharaoh, verse 9. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. This is perhaps the most Jacob way to describe his life, isn't it? Many commentators think that Jacob here is merely referencing how many challenges he faced. And they remind us when you're reading them, our lives too are one challenge and trial after another. And it's not until we get to the other side that we get our blessing. The overview of his life, the way he puts it, just seems bleak and miserable, doesn't it? You know, Jacob sees his whole life one bad thing after another. I don't know about you, but I don't think of Jacob's life as one bad thing after another. I think of his life as one glorious thing after another. And here I think we see the glimpse into the self-pity of Jacob again, don't we? Why do I think that? It's a pretty bold claim, right, to go against the patriarch. It's a pretty bold claim for me to say, actually, Jacob, I think that you've got this wrong. But have a listen to the way Moses describes Abraham's life, Genesis 25, 7 to 8. This is Moses speaking. He says, "These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people." What about Isaac? Ten chapters later, we see the description of him. Genesis 35:28 to 29 says, "Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days." Now, these men faced their fair share of trials, didn't they? Think of Abraham. He went to war. He had all sorts of things come up against him. He had to leave everything behind in Ur of the Chaldees. He traveled thousands of kilometers. He would definitely be considered to have had a hard life. And yet here he is described dying in a good old age full of years. It seems that Jacob can't see his life the same way that Moses saw Abraham's In Isaac's life, he sees his life as evil, hard, unfair, short. Now, I don't know about you, but if I reached 130, the last thing I'd be calling my life is short. But he's comparing himself to Abraham, 175. Or even his father Isaac. How old was Isaac? 180. These men lived very, very long lives. And we would do better not to dwell in self-pity like Jacob, and apologize for our age, but to live in joy as Abraham and Isaac did. And this word sojourning comes up again, doesn't it? Jacob sees both himself and his father and grandfather as sojourners, dwelling on this earth for a short time, not having arrived at their destination. And this is true. The writer of Hebrews describes the patriarchs this way, Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 and 16. He says, these all, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Where did they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth? Right here in this passage we just read, Jacob describes himself as a sojourner. And he says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hold on to that word city because it's very important. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all failed to receive the land in its fullness, but it didn't mean that they would never receive it. They would eventually arrive at the destination, but the destination wasn't necessarily the promised land, but the city of God. And what does the city of God symbolize? The presence of God, the place where God is. The good land they would receive was not merely the abundance of Goshen or Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, but the heavenly country. Like the patriarchs, we too, as Christians, are seeking a better country, a heavenly country, and we... As well, can feel like strangers and exiles, sojourners on this world, that this world is not our home and not where we're supposed to be. And that leads me to my second point the cursed land. Let's keep reading from verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own. As seed for the land and as food for yourself and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So here in the book of Genesis, we see some very important information as to kind of how this famine works itself out in the land of Egypt. The famine was perhaps one of the most severe that has ever occurred on the face of the planet. And it has made the the farmers and noblemen absolutely destitute. They're forced to exchange all of their money and then sell all of their livestock and then sell all their land, and then even sell themselves just to survive this famine. And having read this, you might feel like, well, Joseph, you kind of took him for a ride there. You took every single thing off them. That didn't seem very generous. That didn't seem very gentle. You kind of just took it all, pushing them to give away everything they had to Pharaoh. But this section actually speaks to the opposite of that. It speaks to Joseph's grace and kindness, and he is able to work out probably one of the best outcomes for the country. Now, you must remember at this time that ancient tax rates were enormous. We have information from civilizations that existed around this time, and you can see the tax rate that some of them had. For instance, the code of Hammurabi was between 50 and 66%. Imagine if 50 or 66% of your income was being pilfered away by the government every time you earned. Some people are going to be like, hang on a minute. That's a lot. That is enormous. But Joseph orchestrates this situation in such a way to stay in Pharaoh's good graces, but also to allow the Egyptians to maintain their land at a very low tax. A tax of one-fifth, which our uh, mathematical people will know is 20%. That 20% tax would be considered rent. By buying the land off the Egyptians, Joseph now had the opportunity to give seed back to the Egyptians free of charge. And by giving that seed back to them free of charge, that land technically being pharaohs, but they would get to keep 80% of what they grew. That's pretty generous. That is very generous, especially in the context of the time that we're looking at. Now, this law that Joseph made still stood by the time that Moses was writing the book of Genesis a little more than 400 years later. And Joseph managed to save Egypt, keep Pharaoh happy happy, and not oppress the people. He never took any of it for himself. He never took any of it for his people. He never leveraged his position to get rich and he never took any bribes from anyone. The only thing he received was from the hand of Pharaoh as a gift. And to an ancient person reading this, you would have been absolutely shocked by the way that Joseph not only rules with justice, but with grace. And he deals fairly with the people. And yet we see that Egypt finds itself cursed, destitute, losing all their freedoms to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh technically owns them, which currently is the way that our governments see us. They've become his subjects in a way that they were not before. Seems that the Egyptian nobility had property rights before this. It seemed that before this, they had a level of freedom and decision-making for what they were allowed to do. But no more. They were subjects of pharaoh. Governments are very good at using disasters as a great opportunity to grow and encroach upon the rights of their citizens. And this is not a new thing. It has been happening since the dawn of time. But don't feel too bad for the Egyptians. For the first seven years of plenty, Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, was purchasing and storing up one fifth of the grain to survive. What were these nobles doing? What were these farmers doing? They knew what was going on. They knew the dream of Joseph. They knew that they were storing up a fifth every year. And yet the farmers and nobility did nothing. Kind of makes you think of Noah. Noah's building this ship, takes him a long time, and everyone's paying attention to it, but no one thinks it's going to go anywhere. Joseph is collecting all this grain, saying, hey guys, a famine's coming. They don't think it's going to go anywhere. So they do nothing. They don't even store up. They have this abundance coming in. You know what they did? They ate all of it. They feasted. They partied. They didn't store any up. They didn't save it. For a time like this, and they were taken by surprise by this famine, which they really shouldn't have been taken by surprise from. It was a foolish oversight, and now they've lost everything. When we depend on others, especially governments and their systems, it'll always lead to more and more slavery. Had the nobility stored as Joseph had done, they would not be reliant on the provision of Pharaoh and have to meet his terms. And then God sets a distinction in the land of Egypt is cursing in the land of Goshen is blessing and we will see this repeated in the story of Exodus where the plagues fall on the land of Egypt but not in the land of Goshen. They are blessed by God even as they are seen as abominations by the Egyptians. This is my third point, the promised land. Let's finish this one off. Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head his bed. So we see here at the beginning of this last section that Israel is blessed in the land of Goshen. In the middle of the famine, they are gaining possessions. They are multiplying while the rest of Egypt are losing possessions and decreasing. And Jacob, we see, he lives a further 17 years, coming to the ripe old age of 147, and he knows that his time is short, and he does not want to be buried in Egypt. He wants to be buried in the promised land, Canaan alongside his wife Leah the mother of the promise Jacob by faith knew that the promises of God were not restricted to this life but would find their fulfillment in the next and he wanted his body nowhere else but the promised land and he makes Joseph swear to him that he will bury him in Canaan which Joseph swears Puts his hand underneath his thighs, which was a uh, sign of uh, an oath. It's a very intimate oath that's being done here. And then we see Israel bowing himself to Joseph, fulfilling the dream of Joseph from long ago. Here Jacob bows to his son, albeit a very cumbersome bow in a bed, but he does do it. And as we saw in Hebrews 11, we see that Jacob died in faith, not having received the promise. But he saw it and he greeted it and he knew that there was a true destination, the city of God. He might not have known it in its fullness and in those words, but he saw that there was a promise that will be fulfilled, that there will be multitudes upon multitudes worshiping God. And the writer of Hebrews builds upon his argument from Hebrews 11 into this great crescendo into this pivotal point that Christians who believe in the promise of salvation in Christ will receive the city. But listen to this mighty conclusion. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of the of Abel. Did you see how that began? It says, you have come. That's in the Greek perfect tense. That means that it has happened to you presently. It is a present reality for you. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. The writer of Hebrews is saying back in Hebrews 11, these guys greeted it from afar, but they died not having received it. But guess what, Christian? You have. Received it. We have received this promise in the heavenly city. And in the book of Revelation, what was the heavenly city descending from heaven? New Jerusalem, right? A bride adorned for Christ, the church. The church. We have received this promise in the church, this kingdom. This promised land was established by Christ and is rock solid. It will never be overthrown. Christian, you are not necessarily a stranger in exile in this land. You already are home. You have made it home. You are in the city of God right now. And you may be thinking, how on earth does that even work? How does that even work itself out? It doesn't even feel like a reality for me right now. Well, Here's an analogy. Think about the kingdom of God like a house built on a firm foundation. We know that Christ is the cornerstone, right? And everything is built on the cornerstone of Christ. This building that's starting to spring up around Christ as the church triumphs across history. With each generation of Christians, more and more stones are being added to this wonderful building. With each passing Christian that comes, this building gets added to. And we look around and we see this building isn't finished. There are still more to come in, but it's our home, right? You know, you go buy a block in Huntley, you start building it, it's your home. Might not be done yet, but it's being built. The longing we have is for our home to be complete, for the church to be brought in in its fullness, for Christ to return and we come into this world to offer our contributions and stones to the great building the church knowing that at the end of human history when the work is done we will build that we will dwell sorry in the finished furnished enormous household of god this is our promised land have a look around at everyone right now here's your promised land maybe thinking this isn't what i signed up for when i became a christian <laughs> but we are not complete. The building has not been finished. And sometimes we feel the weight because not many stones are getting added during our generation. But we know that in the fullness of human history, who will be saved will come in. And you have the privilege above privileges to contribute to the building of the church in your age and in your generation. That is your privilege. That is your right. That is what Christ has won for you through his blood. You have the opportunity to make your contribution until Christ comes again. So don't squander this amazing prospect. Make your dent in the course of human history for the glory of Christ and for his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How good is that? There's a a famous Christian song that says... um, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Have you guys heard that song? I want to kind of amend that. This world is my home, and I'll be coming back to this building. Let's pray. Father, how glorious it is that you are building this enormous cathedral of saints At this wonderful temple built by living stones, built by the lives of men and women, reborn and reshaped into the image of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this amazing privilege to make our dent here in human history, that we can contribute to this wonderful building, we can contribute to this home that we belong to right now. Father, often we can long so much for the home to be completed that we forget that we have work to do right now. And so, Father, I pray by your spirit and by your mercy that you'd empower us, that you'd fire us up, that you'd get us ready to go out into this world and to win men and women for your name and to build this amazing kingdom and this amazing city and this amazing building for your glory and your glory alone. We praise you, Lord, that you have seen fit to save us, that you knew us before the foundation of the world, and you have called us into your wonderful kingdom. I pray we would never forget that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move to a time of communion now. I just want to read very briefly from John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Yet if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When we come to the communion table, we have the two elements we have the bread and we have the wine. And the bread, as we know, symbolizes the broken body of Christ. And the wine symbolizes the blood spilt. Remember that Jesus went to prepare this amazing place, your place within the church, through these elements, through his body and through his blood. That through his sacrifice and atonement on the cross, you gain access to the very household of God. You get the right to be called a child of God. And the problem with doing uh, communion so frequently is that sometimes it can lose its power. And I pray that today we would not feel the power waning, but that we will once again recognize what it cost Jesus to buy us and purchase us into this kingdom. So the way we do uh, communion here at church, if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you can stand up, come over to the table, grab a bit of bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, The wine is the darker liquid. The juice is the lighter liquid. And then come grab a seat. And then we're all going to pray together as one unified church. And we're going to eat together as one body of Christ. So please feel free to come and do that. Um, It's just over at the table here. Really good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you gave your son Jesus to this world as an act of love to this world, to show the world that you are a good God, a holy God, a righteous God, and you are both just and a justifier, that you ransom dirty, wicked sinners like us and you bring us into new life through your body and blood. We thank you, Lord, that you did not consider this too dear a price. But Father, we can so easily cheapen this We can feel like it didn't cost much. But Lord, we know the infinite cost that it took to purchase us and win us into your kingdom and to bring us to this great cathedral of saints. So Father, please, I pray for all these people here today, your spirit would be firm upon them, that they would feel the weight of what they are doing here at the Lord's Supper and that they would eat the body of Christ and drink the blood and proclaim his death until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen.